This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Before I get into today's episode, I wanted to thank those who have given me feedback, whether that's in person or email or a text, about the last podcast that I released. One of the reasons that I have a podcast is that I think that too often we have poor communications, poor conversations, poor communication skills in our country, and that is a big reason why we see such a divide and so much contention in our country. Now, my goal in that podcast wasn't to convince anyone to think the way that I think or to adopt my point of view as their own point of view, because I don't actually think that is what is necessary for healthy dialogue or for good conversations. I think it is important to not get too emotional. I think it's important to not throw around accusations or to see the other person as a threat or to see the other person as the villain, which I hope that didn't come across that I think that because I I don't. Some of the feedback that I got, which I love to hear is, hey, this podcast episode made me think about things in a different way. I love that. Like that's always good. I also got feedback saying, hey, I learned something in this podcast episode that I wasn't aware of before. Well, I love that too. And I have learned things over the years as I've, you know, dug into things or asked questions about why something is the way it is or how was it historically. So I love being able to spark learning or interest in other people as well. Obviously, it wasn't a conversation because it was just me talking, but I have enjoyed some of the conversations after that podcast has been released, or even just some of the feedback that I've gotten. And I hope that you are having conversations with people in your life that you have conversations with and that you find some meaning and connection in having healthy dialogues. Again, like I said, I don't think healthy dialogues require people to see things the same. I think healthy dialogues connect us to each other and we're able to see the other person. And so I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to have some healthy, I mean, I guess it's not always dialogue. Sometimes I have guests on and I think the conversation is good when I have guests on. And when I don't have guests on and I'm just kind of rambling out loud and releasing that, not necessarily rambling, I usually do have an outline and I put some thought into the episodes. I rarely just hit record and end up releasing that. But I hope that it does lead to some good conversations and to thinking and some good Google searches that lead you to other links, that lead you to other links, and that really just open your eyes in ways that maybe hadn't before. Because I think that's what we need. I think we need conversations that make us feel alive and that bring out our humanity. So thank you for the feedback on the last podcast episode. Now, as you may recall in the last podcast episode, I had stated that I had two podcasts already recorded and ready to release. And one was going to release 
I think the end of June. I had recorded it before the summer solstice, but I had kind of thought in my head, oh, it'd be kind of cool to record this podcast episode around the summer solstice um, as we're heading into the podcast episode, the topic that I wanted to talk about. And so I did, I did record it and was going to release it. And then as you know, if you listened to the last podcast episode, I also had some recording issues with static and background noise that is super annoying. And those two podcast episodes that I had recorded also were snagged up in the background noise and the recording issues that I had. So I am re-recording those. This is one of them I'm re-recording. I will re-record the other one and release that as well. Also, thank you to those who gave me feedback and said, hey, quality is top. It's great. You know, several said, I think your quality actually has improved with this podcast episode. So hopefully that helps. I wasn't aware that it wasn't good quality, but hopefully that maintains. And I just won't touch anything that I am not supposed to touch. I mean, I don't think that I had touched something, but somehow the settings got off. So anyway, I wanted to talk today. And you may be wondering to yourself, why is this a public service announcement? Like, why are you talking about this? Well, I will bring it back around. I think I normally do. But I wanted to talk about something that we talk about at our office. We talk about it in staff meetings. We talk about this heading into the summer months. We talk about it coming out of the summer months. But it's not just we're adopting this uh, campaign ad. It's not necessarily something that is completely related or correlated with mental health. But I wanted to talk about the 100 deadliest days of summer. Now, maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've seen ads for that. And you're thinking, wait, what is that? The 100 deadliest days of summer? So the 100 deadliest days of summer start between the Memorial Day and Labor Day weekends. So that's the 100 days that we're talking about. And across the country, we see the number of fatal car accidents nearly double on the roads. So here in Utah, more than 300 people died over the last three years on our state's highways. That's more than one death a day. Now, you may be asking yourself, why would the fatalities from accidents on the roads nearly double in that time period? Like, it doesn't sound like, you know, it's not like high uh, snowfall season. It's not like it's, you know, we don't necessarily have like hurricane or tornado season here. So it's not like it's something that springs to mind where you're where logically you think, oh, yeah, got it. That makes sense that the fatalities nearly double. And it's not just Utah. Uh, This is a campaign, from what I can tell, I tried to find when it started, and I couldn't actually find a year where it started. But from what I could find, it does sound like it's a nationwide campaign ad that, you know, gets released, that they have commercials and ads warning about this time period and trying to remind drivers to take caution be safe on the roads so that we can hopefully not see this number continue to rise the way that it has been over the past several years. Now, why would summer be dangerous for driving? Summer's a good time to relax, have fun, go on a nice vacation with your family. According to the Utah Department of Public Safety, 94% of all accidents are caused by human error. 
And we know if you've you know been behind the road and had a close call, that even the slightest distraction can quickly turn into a tragedy. Now, we might think, but the roads are safer during the summer. They're, they tend to be drier. There's not as many storms, which is true, at least in, in Utah, for sure that's true. But we also think when the roads are dry, that makes them safer. And so typically drivers are traveling at higher speeds, thinking that the roads are safer and so more caution is not necessary. Now, that's not what the stats add up to. The stats say that more than 80% of collisions occur on dry roads when the sky is clear. So again, one of those things that like how we, we would logic our way into that, it's actually the opposite. We would think that with clear skies, dry roads, accidents go down when in fact 80% of collisions occur on dry roads when the sky is clear. Now, on top of that, like I said, it is a good time to go on vacation with your family. And a lot of other people think that too. So we find more RVs and more trailers traveling on the road. And with more RVs and more trailers on the road, you would think that maybe we'd be more cautious of following distance and stopping distance. And that's not proven to be the case. We're still probably because the roads are busier with people out on the roads, going to places, we actually see that stopping distance, people aren't necessarily respecting that. Maybe we think, you know, here in Utah, maybe the thinking is, well, it's not like there's ice. It's not like I'm going to, you know, if I hit the brakes, it's not like I'm going to skid on wet roads or icy roads. Again, not necessarily that that's the right way to think because our stats are not saying that we're actually safer or the dry roads protect us better. Now in Utah, fatal crashes and collisions are 45% higher during this time period, the 100 deadliest days of summer, compared to the rest of the year. And they account for 56% of total fatal accidents. Now, unsurprisingly, teens are the most frequently involved in crashes during the summer than any other age group. Now, I don't know, having had teen drivers myself, I don't know that that is necessarily because they're teens. You know, I remember when my oldest got her driver's license and within probably three weeks, two or three weeks, she had gotten in an accident, but she had been rear-ended by a driver in, I think her 30s, late 30s, who was texting and driving. And so my daughter was like, all these people saying that teens are the ones who are texting and driving. Like I was hit by a adult who was texting and driving. So maybe teens aren't, you know, worse drivers than any other age group, but we do know they're less skilled drivers than any other age group. It's just not something they've been doing for decades of their life, right? Their brain hasn't had the ability to kind of pick up on the skill and be able to unconsciously be competent at doing this. It's still something they have to, you know, focus on, concentrate on. And so teens are more frequently involved. In fact, motor vehicle accidents currently are the leading cause of death for people under the age of 21, with an average of 260 deaths every year. Now, 60% of the accidents are caused by distracted driving. So this is when another passenger distracts the driver. So one of the things, you know, in Utah, once you get your driver's license at 16, it's still recommended, it's not mandatory, but it's recommended that parents do not allow their teen driver, their new teen driver to drive with friends in the car for at least six months. 
kind of giving that team time to figure out driving and to not have the distraction of a car full of friends talking, radio, all of that type of stuff. So again, I mean, there can be just some of that fun teenage behavior that you think about can actually be quite deadly during these summer months when teens are more likely to be out and about and hanging out with friends and staying out late. Now, there are what we have been able to identify as they have kept statistics during this time period. They've been able to identify the five so-called deadliest driving behaviors that can lead to serious injuries or death. So the first one is impaired driving. I'm just going to go through these quickly. Impaired driving, where drugs and alcohol can significantly impair your ability or our ability to process things, to react. It can impair our judgment. It's just important to always drive sober and to check the warning label on your medications to know if they might affect your reflexes or affect the way that you're driving. Now, I I think often with the summer months, we tend to be, you know, out at barbecues, out at parties, teens are out with friends. So sometimes this level of impairment can also rise just with the nature of summer activities and summer social activities. So again, it's just important to remember that, you know, any type of drug or alcohol in your system can impair or impact your judgment and your ability to process information and to react to that. Another issue like that we talked about with teens is distracted driving. So distracted driving is anything that takes your attention away from driving safely. So it can be your cell phone or a passenger talking to you that, you know, pulls your eyes and your attention away from the road and onto something else. So in 2017 in Utah, distracted driving was the cause of 147 injuries and 27 deaths in Utah. So again, just important to remember to stay focused on driving, even though, you know, sometimes we can drive and arrive without really concentrating on how we get from point A to point B. It's still important to be focused and alert when we're driving, even if you've been driving for a long time. Now, another of the five so-called deadliest driving behaviors is aggressive driving. So this is when people are going outside of the speed limits. Again, you know, we can be fooled by the good weather and the dry roads and we start to think like, oh, it's safe to go faster. And so we can exceed the speed limit, which if there is an accident, will only increase the risk for a serious or fatal injury. Now, I know for me, that's one of the things that I have to be aware of because one of my pet peeves and I like I've tried to work on it it just it drives me crazy I'm not necessarily a really fast driver although I will say when I switched cars and bought myself a Tesla those things go much faster and you don't notice and so I had to really pay attention because there were times I'm like I'm probably going five over the speed limit and I would look down and be like nope, you're 25 over the speed limit. And I was like, oh, wow, I have got to pay attention. And so I I had to give myself time to adjust to how it feels to go faster in that car than it did my previous car. But I'm typically one who likes to go, you know, five, five, six over the speed limit. Remember in driver's ed, them saying you probably won't get a ticket if you're going. So the highway speeds here are 70. 
So if you're going 76, you probably won't get a ticket. So I'm typically going about 76 if possible. What really starts to get to me and I have to kind of practice breathing and meditation and focusing on something else because it can really be a pet peeve is when we're going 60 in a 70 and there's not like a legitimate reason. It's not like the road is super crowded or there's been an accident and it's just like all of the cars in all four lanes aren't aware that they're going 60 miles an hour. That, I think it's something about feeling trapped or feeling stuck behind somebody not going the speed limit, but that can just push my button and make me oh so annoyed. Not to drive aggressively, that's still not a reason to drive aggressive. I have to just practice some deep breathing and be like, okay, okay, we're gonna go 60. I don't know why, that's just what we're doing. Another of the five fatal behaviors or potential fatal behaviors is drowsy driving. Now, I don't know if you've ever, you know, been on the roads on a summer day, the sun's out, it's warm, you're headed someplace and just the warmth of the sun, maybe the radio, just the driving, the motion of the driving, it lulls you to sleep. Hopefully it doesn't lull you to sleep because that would be very bad. But you just kind of notice like, oh wow, I could take a nap. If that's happening, it is good to switch out drivers or pull over to the side of the road, get off on an exit, you know, give yourself some time to kind of wake back up and be more alert so that you can be safe on the road and not put yourself or others in jeopardy. Now, if you feel tired or your eyelids are heavy or maybe you've just yawned too many times, your body may be telling you that it's time to stop and we might want to push through it. You know, I think our country has weird things about sleep, like where we brag if we don't need a lot of sleep or sometimes we brag about only getting four hours of sleep. Sometimes it's not bragging, it's just informing like, oh, I didn't get good sleep last night or my kids were up a lot last night. But I think we also, you know, want to push through things instead of recognizing our limits. So again, if we're starting to feel tired, if our eyelids are heavy, if we're yawning and our body is telling us it's time to stop, we need to respect those limits, recognize that it is safest for us to stay within those limits and just give ourselves time to rest or, you know, take a little snooze, set an alarm, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, maybe you'll show up to where you were headed a little bit late, but it's just not worth the risk of not arriving at all. And then another of the five deadliest behaviors, the fifth one, is not buckling up. So I'm old enough to remember when many cars didn't have seat belts, car seats weren't really a thing. I, like I, I have memories of driving in the car and like one of my younger siblings is on my lap as an infant, right? And they're just like laying on my lap or sometimes we might lay a blanket on the back seat and lay that infant who can't really turn over or move that much. We'll just lay them on the seat. A little bit uh, astounding to think about. That's you know how we used to move about with infants and young kids in cars. And then I think we got to a place where we had like just those metal car seats for kids, right? That really was not going to protect a kid. It might keep them in place during an accident, but I don't know. When you look at those, if you can, you know, Google a picture of it, like some of the early car seats, it did not look like it was actually going to do much good at all. Maybe better than them sitting just freely on a lap or the seat. 
But I remember when I was old enough to take driver's ed and start learning how to drive, it was a very big deal to wear your seatbelt. It was something that they were pushing heavily. And I just, you know, got in the habit of doing that. I had an older sister who was two years older than me. And so, you know, when she started taking driver's ed, it became something in the family that she was always like, wear your seatbelt, wear your seatbelt. And so it, it became much more of a habit for me and for my family when my oldest sibling was taking driver's ed to just make sure that we're buckling up. Now, I, I know like my youngest daughter, on the other hand, I frequently, fortunately, we have smarter cars that can tell me who is not buckled up, right? It just gives me a warning. I can look down at a screen and it says, these are the people who do not have seatbelts on. But I've noticed, I don't know if it's her generation or just her particular group of people she hangs out with, but they're kind of lax on buckling up, which is concerning. I always pointed out, hey, that's just not a good habit to be in, to not, you just need to get in the habit of getting in a car and buckling up before the car starts to move. We know there is good research that says a seatbelt can make the difference between life and death. And so we need to make sure that everyone's buckled up around us instead of, and not just ourselves, but everybody. In 2015, 50% of fatalities in Utah occurred to unrestrained motorists. So again, that's a pretty high percentage of fatalities that may have been avoidable or may have been less severe if the individuals had been buckled up. Now, no matter how safely we drive, which it's always good to do, accidents can still happen when someone else is at fault. But it's good to be able to be aware of the things that tend to increase the number of fatalities on roads and highways across the United States during this particular time period. Okay, so why did I want to talk about that? Other than a public service announcement, I think it's always good to have a reminder about how we travel and whether that's going well or not. I also know for me, you know, one of the things when I first did the personal craziness index, it's an exercise in one of uh, Patrick Carnes's workbooks. When I first did that, I, you know, I, it was not hard for me to become aware that when I am stressed or under pressure or something like that, like just in my personal life, that drivers going slower, that pet peeve of mine is like double, like it just gets on me. So, you know, that was one of the things in the personal craziness index that I was able to identify and say like, yeah, if this is happening, if it's like fingers on a chalkboard annoying to me, that's a sign to me that I'm dealing with more pressure or challenge or stress than what is good for me as a human being. And I need to pay attention and look at what, what I can do to get back in the limits that I'm better when I live within. Now, one of the things, because I mentioned that, you know, we talk about this time period as well in staff meeting, and it we've adopted this for us because so often we find headed into the same period from Memorial Day to Labor Day, we find that for so many of our clients, the summer months can be deadliest in terms of their own recovery, right? There can be an increase in slips and relapses. There can be an increase in conflict for sure that happens, which can then lead to a slip or a relapse. 
Sometimes they get a little bit lax about their anchoring behavior. Or, you know, we also know typically our number of sessions that we do at our clinic tend to decrease during the summer months. Not by a lot, but, you know, we just have more clients who are going on vacation. And so what is typical for us to see in a week changes during this time period. And that's fine. You know, I always tell my therapist, like, don't determine how many clients you can see based on your summer caseload, because if they all come back in the fall and you're going to be overbooked. We don't want that to happen. So, you know, I might like, just enjoy, you know, some of the cancellations if they're out of town, a little bit lighter caseload during the summer. Just enjoy that because it'll get really busy and crazy come September through December. So the other thing that we find is, you know, come September, kids get back into school. Well, August, you know, give them some weeks to be back in school. We find that people reaching out to our intake line really increase come September. And often when, you know, we're meeting with them, doing those initial intake sessions, you know, we we hear so many stories that happened during this 100 deadliest days, right? Things that were happening during the summer months that they put off because of vacation or put off because of whatever, it's summer. And so it didn't get the attention that it needed to. So by the time they're actually coming in in September, their lives are quite unmanageable. And this addiction has had some time to really escalate and increase in unmanageability. So we also talk about this 100 deadliest days where we see some of the traction in sobriety slips a little bit, not for all clients, but certainly for those new to recovery. You know, maybe in the summer they ease up kind of like they would with schoolwork, right? And the summer months, it's like, let's take a vacation. I'm going on vacation. You know, I, I don't typically anymore, but sometimes I would have clients who will be like, oh, I'm going to have a really busy summer. So maybe I can just start back in the end of August, first part of September. And, you know, usually I'm like, I don't know that that's a good idea. I think that's going to be a problem. You know, that's a long time to go without therapy sessions when we're newer in sobriety or newer in recovery. Sometimes they heed that warning. Sometimes they're like, oh, I'll be fine. And then I see him again in September. And they were not, in fact, fine during that time that they took off. And so, again, you know, sometimes I will have People ask me, just knowing that I'm a therapist and knowing that I am certified in sex addiction and, you know, work towards healthy sexuality, sometimes I'll have people say, like, do you think, you know, it's because of how immodest, again, I live in Utah, but do you think it's because of how immodest people dress in the summer that, you know, things happen in the summer? Well, no, I don't. I hear that sometimes and from some of my Clients, they may say, I don't know, it's really hard. Women are wearing tank tops or shorts and that's harder for me to not objectify them. I don't really think it's about what another person is wearing. I think it's more about how the individual is coping. And so, you know, I, I think well, we can objectify women in hoodies and jeans. Like, you know, se sexual objectification isn't determined by the amount of skin one can see. And so I, I think that's maybe where some people jump to. I think it's an easy explanation, but I, I don't think, I mean, I haven't done research on it and I haven't seen or read 
research that has been done on it. But I don't think that in and of itself would explain what we see happen during the summer months to some of the clients that we're working with who are in recovery or working towards getting into recovery. So I wanted to come up with my own list of instead of like the five potentially deadly behaviors, I wanted to come up with some, the five behaviors that can actually keep things stable and keep the traction that clients have gained working through the summer months. Now, I've heard Dr. Carnes give statistics on addiction in our country, in the United States, a number of times. And I usually am not fast enough to write down what he says. If I am fast enough to write down what he says, it might not make sense to me later when I read what I wrote down. But in his newer book that came out last year, Recovery Zone Volume 2, so there's a Recovery Zone Volume 1, and then there's Recovery Zone Volume 2, In there, he wrote it down, which I'm so grateful that he wrote it down and that I have it so I can read it, I can go back to it, I can refer to it as often as I want, and it makes sense to me. So he says, quote, in reality, addiction is our number one health problem. Alcoholism and drugs continue to be a problem. Two thirds of adults in North America have used prescription drugs such as hydrocodone for non-medical purposes. Over a third of our adults and children fit the diagnostic criteria for obesity. Studies show over two-thirds of our preteen and early teenagers are sexually active digitally while doing homework. Estimates are that over a third of those children will struggle with sex addiction. An example is that the age of onset of throat cancer has begun decades earlier than previous generations because of the sexual promiscuity in our high schools, I would add, and the lack of sex education. He continues, North America is the primary producer of pornography on the internet. We, meaning the United States, we are the least healthy of developed nations and have the most expensive medical care. Our number one public health problem is addiction, and it is eroding our economy and our abilities to be viable and competitive. We are in a financial crisis proportionately because of our mistaken beliefs about mental health and addiction. And then he ends this particular part of what he's talking about. He says, anyone in this culture who enters recovery is swimming against the current of opinion, end quote. So again, just something to think about when we're thinking about mental health and addiction and some of the attitudes that contribute to the worsening of mental health and addiction behaviors. Also something to think about in terms of what needs to be different if we want to make improvements across the board when it comes to the financial health, the mental health, the overall health and investment in our country. So going along with the five potentially deadly behaviors, I want to talk about some of the five potentially reinforcing behaviors of the traction that one has started to get in sobriety or recovery. Again, I just want to point out, I think I've said this in other episodes, in our clinic, we differentiate between sobriety and recovery. I know a lot of people, and when some of our clients have come to us and they've worked with other therapists or other sponsors even in addiction recovery, they use those terms interchangeably. Sobriety, recovery, they kind of use those interchangeably. We don't. You know, we think that sobriety is important 
But if we're only focused on stopping something, that's going to have limited success. And at some point, they're going to start up that addiction or another addiction in order to continue to cope. So, you know, we think that sobriety can be necessary to move into recovery or some attempts at sobriety. Sometimes with some of my clients, I find that they actually, when we start to work on some of the bigger issues around recovery, which I think will make clear as I'm talking about some of these five behaviors that reinforce or secure sobriety and recovery. Sometimes I find that, you know, as we work on some of the recovery issues, we actually get some stabilization in sobriety. Other times, you know, I get sobriety. I mean, it's nice if we can. I think kind of the ideal map is to get sobriety and then work on the recovery issues. And I think that's great when it works. It just doesn't always work out that way. And so I think, again, we have to be adaptable with the client that's sitting in the session with us. So when they talked about impaired driving as one of the potentially fatal behaviors, I think also impaired thinking. When it comes to sobriety and when it comes to addiction, we understand that impaired thinking sets off the whole chain reaction that moves us into an addiction cycle. So when we talk about you know, addiction cycles, we talk about the cycle that keeps us using, right? And maybe not continual use, but, you know, I mean, some of my clients have maybe a three to four day turnaround before they're back in preoccupation, moving into the ritual behavior that moves them into acting out. That's followed then by despair. Other times, you know, they can be in cycle pretty much for, you know, a month solid and there's never really an interruption you know as soon as they're hitting despair they're back into preoccupation and pretty quickly moving into acting out again so i think you know that's when we're talking about sobriety we're talking about interrupting that particular addictive cycle so you know there are better off ramps in that cycle than others you know it can be really hard between ritual behavior and acting out to exit the cycle But, you know, it's a little bit easier. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a little bit easier to exit when or to catch ourselves in preoccupation and exit before we move into ritualization. Also, you know, sometimes after despair, I mean, for a lot of people, that despair part of the cycle is quite distressing and psychologically uncomfortable. And that can move us back into preoccupation pretty quickly. So that despair phase can be pretty short-lived sometimes. But, you know, after acting out and moving into despair, that can be a time where we get resolved to make things better or to change things or to not just continue in this cycle that we've been stuck in. So that's the addiction cycle. When we are talking about impaired thinking, we're looking more at an addictive system. So an addictive system is what makes the whole addiction cycle possible. And Addictive systems are kicked off with false beliefs about self, um, which then is followed by impaired thinking. I like to think of these two kind of playing together like if this, then this, right? So if I am a bad person or if I hurt others, if I'm not trustworthy, 
those type of things, those are some false beliefs I would have about myself, then it doesn't matter if I keep secrets. Then I need to do what I need to do to feel better because I'm not going to get that in the relationships I'm part of, that type of thinking. So that's how I usually think of and explain the negative beliefs and the impaired thinking. They're different sides of the same equation that fuel each other and then lead to that addictive cycle, which then exacerbates the unmanageability that we have going on in the life of addicts. So if we replace impaired thinking with more accurate thinking, right? So this is where we talk about how important it is in recovery to be honest, to be able to be honest with yourself, to be able to be honest with others in your life. You know, that's something as a therapist, when I'm working with addicts, I often want to know, and I'm kind of tracking in the background of our sessions, I'm tracking, are they being honest with me? I expect, and often I might say in an initial session, I don't expect that you're coming in and telling me 100% of the truth. Because I haven't earned 100% of the truth. You don't know if you can trust me. You don't know if I'm competent to do something with that. You just don't know. And I get that. And I understand I have to build that trust with you. That's part of my job. I have to build trust with you. And if I do my job well, then we're going to run into these awkward moments when something has come up for you and you haven't told me about it. And I might think that you're lying. And I'll just say, This is just a pass. You can use it whenever you need to that I know you're not giving me 100% up front. So when we run into that later down the road, just give it to me. Just say, hey, I don't think we've talked about this before. I don't know if I've told you this before. Maybe you do know that you haven't told me. Maybe you're not sure, but just say, hey, there's something I haven't actually talked to you about before, but it's coming up and this is what I need to talk to you about. And that way, the two of us as therapist and client, can start to build a relationship where the client is seen and the client is known. And sometimes, yeah, it's not always, it doesn't feel good to be known for some of the mistakes or the things we've done in our life that we're not proud of. But I think that's really where the opportunities to be vulnerable and to be known lie most often. Not lie like I'm lying, but like, lie is in they're there to be found. I guess that was kind of confusing wording. Because I think, you know, for most of us, I mean, some of us might have a problem like with receiving compliments or having people say really nice things about us. That can make us uncomfortable too. But I think given the choice, would you want people to say all of the strengths or all of the deficits about you? Most of us would probably say, oh, I'll go with strengths if that's my option. And so again, I think it's really important to create a relationship where you as a client are fully known and where the therapist has as much information about you as you're finding out about yourself and you're sharing that with somebody and it feels safe and you still feel accepted and you still feel like you matter and that somebody's going to show up for you. So I think again, we have to look for that impaired thinking that can happen and replace that with accurate thinking. And I think that happens as we start to get more and more honest in our recovery process. Now, the next behavior that we talked about that is a potentially fatal behavior was distracted driving. 
And I think when we're talking about recovery, one of the things that moves us through these hundred potentially deadly days can be our ability to maintain focus. Now, we talk sometimes in addiction recovery, we'll talk about, again, I just went through kind of that addiction cycle that gets kicked off with preoccupation. Now, preoccupation, you know, just if we look at the definition of preoccupation, it means to be completely engrossed in a thought or to completely be immersed in or absorbed in. And while we could certainly argue outside of the realm of addiction that preoccupation isn't necessarily a bad thing, that we you know, can have that ability to preoccupy on something, um, I think when it shows up in the addiction cycle, it's looking a little bit more like obsessiveness. I don't know that we would ever say obsessiveness is healthy. You know, sometimes as we go through different ages, you know, young ages of development, sometimes we get obsessed about certain things. But again, that's a young self. And so we wouldn't necessarily say if that's good, bad, or otherwise, we just say, oh, that's what they do at that age. Or it's one of the things that can happen at that age. But later in life, you know, we need to be more adaptable. We need to be able to pivot and you know, if we're in kind of this obsessed state, that sounds much different than if we have an ability to focus. I think focus is different than obsession or with preoccupation. Preoccupation says I'm focused on, you know, with the uh, instance of sex or pornography addiction, I'm focused on sex. You know, often we talk about one of the common beliefs of sex addicts is that sex is their most important need. And And it's their most important feeling, right? That sexual desire is one of their most important emotions that they have. And, you know, so when they have that emotion, also, if they think it's one of the most important emotions they have, it's not surprising that most of the other emotions get channeled down that sexual desire outlet. You know, sometimes I may say to some of my clients, okay, so here at the surface of awareness, You're having an awareness that you want to have sex. But if we trace that and go a little bit deeper, like what's at the bottom of that barrel that maybe at the top of the barrel we are mistaking for sexual desire? Like, And sometimes when we trace that down, there's sadness, there's sorrow, there's fear, there's insecurity, and it's being masked by sexual desire. Well, we might say that that's not actually sexual desire, but in our belief and part of our impaired thinking, we think, well, sex is going to fix that, which, you know, I typically will tell my clients, I don't think sex is a fix for anything. I don't think that's how sex is designed to be used, right? Or I don't think that's how sex works best when it is fixing something. So when we can develop our focus right? Then that's when our clarity starts to become more clear. That's when our intention starts to really come into focus. We're able to start reclaiming our relationship with ourself. We're able to live up to the agreements or promises that we're making. And we start to really understand how addiction came into our life, how it has shaped and influenced our lives. And again, that clarity and intention about getting sober and moving towards recovery starts to become, we have more awareness 
of that. Now, again, when I, I just want to back up for a minute when I talked about like maybe sexual desire being on the surface. And when we, you know, I think often when we start to drill down, there's a lot of pathways that could go. There's a lot of different things under the why, right? But I usually will start to ask my clients like, why the sexual desire? And that starts to, you know, it can help move us down as we get curious and don't tip into shame. We can start to understand more and more about how addiction and why addiction came into our lives and what is the purpose that it served and how has it not served us. Now, understanding all of this is key to a new life and a new relationship with the self. Sometimes this can be overwhelming, especially at the beginning. It seems like so much has to happen and, you know, it can be overwhelming. Now, Dr. Carnes talks about a story he talks about in Renaissance Italy. Da Vinci wrote about working with large surfaces as a critical doorway to creative work and problem solving. He used the metaphor of putting it all on the table while staying focused on the most important elements. In chess, he writes, the primary strategy for success is to control the middle of the board. The same is true with recovery. Addicts need to make sure that what is most important is in the middle of their life. Priorities, purposes, and intentions are the key aspects of successful lives as long as they're kept in the middle of the board. End quote. Again, if you've you know played team sports, there's a, probably other comparisons similar to that, like that ability to, you know, put it all kind of on the field or on the court or whatever sport we're talking about, while also, you know, being able to kind of be aware of a big picture while also being aware of a small picture at the same time. That's a complex process. And that's, you know, what we're trying to get started in sobriety. That's what we're trying to get started in the beginning stages of treatment. And so it's going to be important to be able to focus and to have questions come and to be able to maybe not know the questions initially, but to state the questions, write the question down, come to therapy with the question. And that can keep us away from getting stuck in that loop of preoccupation and obsession. Now, the third potentially fatal behavior is aggressive driving. And I talked a little bit about this where... You know, for me, when I did my personal craziness index, you know, he, he asks you to, on that chart, I don't have the book in front of me right now, but on that chart from my memory, he's asking you to identify, I think he goes through maybe 12, he likes things in 12. So maybe we're going through 12 different areas of our life and we're writing down how it looks when things are going well, kind of when we're in our zone and how it looks when things are not going well. And then from that 12, I think it's 12, could be 15, he asks you to narrow that down to maybe the most important seven that really kind of tell you, hey, this is where you are getting off track and maybe heading into the weeds and you want to be aware of this before you land in a ditch. And so for me, not necessarily my driving changes when I'm under stress or, or more pressure, but my feelings that come up when I'm driving change. I don't know that I necessarily get more aggressive, but definitely I get more annoyed 
or frustrated and it has more of an edge to it when I'm dealing with other stress that puts me outside of my limits versus living inside my limits. And I think that's an important thing, whether you're in recovery from an addiction or just figuring out how to live life in a manageable way. I think it often works best if we live within the limits of how we work best. So that includes knowing how much sleep do you need in order to live within your limits. And so then what time does that put you going to bed, right? How much physical movement or exercise do you need to be living within your limits and functioning at a higher capacity than when we're living outside of our limits? And of course, those limits may change. I think they have to change. You know, when I talk to clients early in recovery, sometimes those limits can feel controlling. And maybe they are meant to bring some manageability to the unmanageability, right? They're meant to decrease the amount of chaos that is happening. You know, my approach with clients, I'm like, I'm not going to determine what your limits have to be. I can give you feedback about what I know other clients have learned and worked or did not work. But ultimately, you have to decide. You have to come to your own assistance. You have to decide from that better place where you and I are sitting in a session what limits you need at different stages of recovery. Some of those may never fully change, right? Some of those limits that you put in in the beginning, you may choose to always keep as part of your recovery plan. Others certainly get looser. Others may fade away as they are replaced by more adaptable limits. The next one is drowsy driving. We talked about how dangerous that can be and how sometimes that, you know, that drowsiness is a limit that often we get the messaging to just push through and just kind of ignore it when that's not really how that works. And so I think, you know, we can, you know, if I have clients who are like, mm, I'm feeling kind of bored in recovery, I'm like, okay, where, when did that start happening? Because I don't think that process of recovery really is boring. And so if you have that awareness, that's great. And we need to be aware of that. Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't have said that, but we need to understand like, what have we missed? Because I think living in recovery is pretty engaging and it takes us engaging with our life. It takes us engaging with the things we are doing as part of our life. And so if we're finding ourselves maybe drowsy or unenthusiastic or bored, you know, I'm usually saying, okay, we're missing something here and we need to add it in because at the very least recovery should be engaging. You know, Dr. Carnes talks about, and if you're familiar with the SAA 12 fellowship, their three circle sobriety plan. So it kind of looks like a bullseye. It has like the center circle. If you're looking at a bullseye is small and then it gets bigger and then a bigger circle. So we've got three circles. And Dr. Carnes talks about how, you know, that three-circle sobriety plan is based on a Buddhist or Tibetan philosophy that says when you know what your yeses are, it's easier to say no. So that smallest circle on the three-circle sobriety plan is what are our no's, right? So those are the things that really would 
identify what relapse is, the things that we are saying no to in terms of if we engage in that behavior again, that's considered a relapse. Then that second circle, right, either moves us out towards our third circle or it moves us more in towards the middle circle of relapse, right? So I usually talk about that second circle as this is our boundary circle. These are the things that like, again, it's not necessarily a consistent no that I don't engage in these things, but it's more of like be intentional when you're engaging with these things. So sometimes it may be, you know, oh, I'm going to be spending two weeks with my family of origin. Okay, but let's be intentional about that. What tends to happen? What emotions come up when we're with our family of origin for two weeks? And how can we manage with intention the emotions that might get triggered when you go on vacation with your family or go back to where you lived and where you grew up with your family of origin? So again, you know, it's actually looking at and being engaged in our treatment process and with what we're doing in life. You know, again, sometimes it's looking at with some of my clients, I'm like, yeah, you're, you're moving pretty far away from this relapse behavior that brought you into therapy. But it's always those emotions that either move us a step closer back to relapse or take us back out to that third circle, which is our yes circle. And, you know, I always tell clients it's in this yes circle. It's not a coincidence that it's the largest circle of the three circles. And it's the yes, right? This is this circle is creating a life of meaning. And how do we do that? What are the things we say yes to that bring meaning to us as a person and bring meaning to the life that we're creating for ourselves? And so again, when we have a life that has meaning for us, it's easier to say no to those things that took away or could could jeopardize the yeses in our lives. I was talking with a client just last week about this particular concept and he's at a point in his recovery where he's made a lot of progress and there's still progress to be made and you know he was just saying I can't relapse anymore because I have you know he named off like five things and he's like these things matter to me and they're important to me and I've I've made those things happen in my life and I'm proud of myself for doing that and if I were to relapse maybe not right away but you know he says I know myself well enough if I relapsed it's going to be a while before I pull myself out of that and he's like and I don't know if I would stop before I've lost everything that I'm sitting here saying has meaning for me and I said to him like that's it's a good place to be in actually when you have created a life of things that are meaningful and that you value and that bring you happiness, that bring you stability, that bring you peace, that bring you contentment. Those are important things that we put into our life, not because they were put there by somebody else, but because something else was put there and that didn't work for us. And so instead we're putting something else in that is working better for us. Now, the last potentially dangerous behavior was not buckling up. Again, I I often say to clients, I don't know where we're going to go in your road to recovery, but I'm going to go that path with you, right? And probably best if we both buckle in. Sometimes these are referring to things like the anchoring behavior, right? Initially getting into some sobriety and early in treatment, we're putting anchoring behaviors in, things that I do every day. Not because I feel like it, but because... This is an anchoring behavior. 
You know, for some of my clients, that looks like eating breakfast. For some of them, it looks like I get out of bed and I make the bed right away. And I do that every day regardless, right? We're bringing some consistency. We're bringing something in that says I'm headed on this track and not that track. And I can be aware if I skip breakfast for three days, hopefully my brain starts to say, hey, wait a minute, you're giving up some things that are taking you in one direction. Are you willing to go in that other direction? And I'm bringing some awareness around that. Now, if I can do that anchoring behavior well for you know, a week, two weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months, it depends. Can I add in a second behavior to fuse with that initial anchoring behavior, right? So I make my bed and I brush my teeth, right? Or whatever that looks like for different clients. We're looking at like, those are some basic ways of caring for the self. And when we start to care for the self, we say, you matter. Now, I also think every time we buckle up, we're saying, I matter. I'm not going to put my life at risk based on decision that I make in the moment of driving or another driver makes when they're driving that might put me at risk. So again, that buckling up, that those anchoring behaviors start to say, I matter. Now, the next podcast episode that I'm recording, I'm going to be talking more about self-care and how that is an important factor of recovery and how that can play into whether treatment is successful or not successful. So again, I just wanted to you know help you maybe think about, again, this podcast episode was going to come out at the beginning of the summer. Now it's coming out more towards the end of the summer. I know, you know, for, I think, I think in my neighborhood, school started today. None of my kids are in the schools. What does it mean? Like they've all graduated from high school basically and are either in college or trying to figure out their lives. So it didn't really impact my family when school started, but I think I saw somewhere that it was starting today. So we're doing it more on the back end of summer instead of the beginning end of summer. I still think there's important things to consider about your recovery And maybe it's a good time to, after you listen to this podcast episode, to pull out your journal, to pull out a notebook that you're writing your recovery things in and just take an inventory. How did I do this summer? And plan for next summer, plan for the next two months. What needs to get back on track and how have I gotten away from what was working? Maybe have a conversation. Maybe if you're in a 12-step group, have a conversation with one of the guys. Hey, I listened to this podcast episode. This is what I'm noticing. Maybe it's with the women in your recovery support groups. Again, having a conversation and just being able to have insight and awareness for yourself as you do your own inventory and then sharing that with another person can lead to connection, can lead to a good dialogue and can really start to cement that awareness that you're having as you take your own inventory, it can take it to another level. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on 
is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.